0: watching a movie for the first time on the big screen at the theater. I mean, you remember one of the first times that you went to the theater? You remember what it was like those first few times you went in there and you saw a TV the size of the state of Texas? I mean, all of our televisions and our phones and our tablets combined would not amount to the size of the screen that you see in a theater. I remember when I would go as a teenager and as a a child growing up, that I would always ask for popcorn and drink when I go with my parents. And obviously, my dad always said no. Because it was the price of gold to buy that nice yellow popcorn full of butter and salt. Well, when you go to the movie theater, maybe you just are like me and you just get the ticket because all the, the food and beverages are way overpriced. Or maybe you go in and you just spend all of your life savings at the theater and you get everything that they offer. But when you walk into the theater, here locally, we have kind of two formats. You walk into one, and it's a gradual slope there with just one level. And if I'm in that theater, I like to find my seat in the very center. Now, if I'm walking into the one where it's like a a stadium and you have steps going up, I have two places I like to sit. I like to sit in the front row of the steps going up, or I like to sit in the very back row. Now, today, obviously, we didn't gather together for me to talk about movies, But today I want you to understand this, that John is literally seeing God's television of the future at display. We're literally watching the big screen of God's prophetic future plans about to unfold here in Revelation chapter six. Remember in chapter four and five. In chapter four, it's all about John being caught up to the throne room of heaven, seeing the throne of God seated high and lifted up. And there he is being worshiped as creator. And in chapter five, we see that that the lamb is, is seen on that throne and he is being worshiped as the redeemer. So in the midst of all of this, Mighty worship, all these beasts and all these angelic beings and all these elders are all at place. John sees in the right hand of God a scroll. And he sees the future events unfolding. In verse 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8, we see the dreadful four horsemen of the apocalypse. And today, my sermon is just simply entitled, The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Today, I want to try to seek what we can learn about God from these eight verses, specifically pertaining to these four horsemen. But before I do that, there's some preliminary questions I want to ask and try to answer before we dive into these eight verses. The first question is this. Are the events which begin here in Revelation 6 about these seals... Is this first seal, all the way down to the fourth seal, are these future events or are these past events? As we read and study the book of Revelation, there's really two major ways to interpret chapters 4 all the way to 22. The first way to interpret and view this book is that these events were fulfilled back in the first century after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and ascension. But then there's a second view that would see these events from chapter 4 all the way to chapter 22 as events that are going to take place in the future. And that is where I land, and that is where our church lands today, that these events that we're reading in chapter 6 and beyond are events that have yet to be fulfilled. The second question is, what is the relationship of these seals with the rapture of the church? I find it very interesting that chapter 6 all the way to chapter 18, there is no mention of the church. That is, the church is no longer the central focus of the plan of God in the future, in the tribulation period. And so it's led most Bible scholars to come to the understanding that the church is raptured out of here before the seven years of the tribulation period. We know the Bible speaks of the rapture. doesn't speak the exact term rapture in our English language, but it does mention caught up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and it speaks about this this thing in, in, in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Now the other question is this, which we'll answer throughout the sermon. Is what is the relationship of these seals with Daniel chapter 9, and specifically verse 27. Then another one is this. Do the seven seals here in Revelation deal with the seven years anticipated by Daniel, chapter 9, verse 27, or are they only the last three and a half years of the tribulational period? Referred to by Jesus as the Great Tribulation and referred to by others as the Great Time of Distress and the time of Jacob's trouble. Well, understand this that if we solely and only study the book of Revelation, we're only going to see three and a half years mention of the seven years. But when you go back and study the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, we see Daniel's 70 weeks being portrayed, and 69 of those weeks were fulfilled right before Jesus died and was buried and rose again. And then there's a mystery that wasn't revealed to the Old Testament saints back in the first 39 books of the Bible, and that is what we call the church age or the church dispensation or the period in time when God would deal with humanity through the agent of his church. And then when the 70th week of Daniel begins is when we believe that the rapture of the church takes place and all of the seven years of the tribulation will transpire. Then the other question is this. What is the relationship of these events here in Revelation with the sermon that Jesus preached on the Mount of Olives about the end times. And I'm gonna seek to answer that question in correlation as we walk through these eight verses today. So if you have your Bibles there, go ahead and find Daniel chapter nine and Matthew 24. And as we dive through these verses, I want you to understand this, that the more I study scripture, the more I see how connected and how unified the word of God is and how God is just a master in in giving us his word and his providential sovereign plan. You see, the Bible is a book unlike any other book. It's a book that displays the very beginning of humanity's history and the cosmos of this universe, but it's also a book that reveals the very ending of all that's going to transpire. So God, we see in the midst of his his judgments being poured out in Revelation chapter 6 to 18, we see that God is also loving and merciful and gracious in the fact that he gives us the book that reveals it all. And so the point here is that judgment day is coming, so get right with God because Jesus is going to return. So what can we learn about God from these four horsemen of the apocalypse? Well, here's the key statement. That if you really walk away with anything today, this is what I want you to walk away with. The four horsemen of the apocalypse teach us God is sovereign over the future tribulation. These four horsemen of the apocalypse teach us God is sovereign over the future tribulation. In fact, if you got your Bibles, look at in Revelation chapter 6 here. Look in verse number 2. It says about halfway down, it says a crown was given unto him. Then in verse number four, the Bible says, and power was given to him. And then in verse number eight, the Bible says power was given unto them. So we see that God is the one giving these horsemen the capability to do what's going to transpire in the future. So in other words, God is sovereign, not just over creation and not just over redemption, but also in the future tribulation. Now, all that to lead in to verse number one. Look at verse one and two. We see in these first two verses the white horse of peace. Notice verse one says, and I saw when the lamb open one of the seals. Now let's pause right here. Remember back in this Roman culture that John was living in about 2,000 years ago, their seals were most likely scrolls. And this particular seal was unique in the fact that it had writings on the inside and on the outside. So the writings on the outside could be seen by the public, but the writings on the inside could only be seen by those who are worthy to open up the seal. And the seal was was a piece of wax that was imprinted with a... With a um, a a, a ring of somebody powerful and important, and we see that Jesus, the Lamb of God, is the only one who's able to break and open these seals, and we see there's seven seals, and notice, and we're going to see seven seals, and then we're going to see at the seventh seal, seven trumpets are going to be blown, and more judgment coming, and then at the seventh trumpet, we're going to see seven bowls, or as the King James says, vials being ushered out on the earth, so all this to signify that God's judgment is finally about to come to this world. Ultimately leading up to as the Old Testament prophet spoke of as the day of the Lord. That is when Christ returns, defeats the Antichrist, and establishes his kingdom. And the Bible says, and I heard as it were the noise of thunder. Thunder cracks very loud. And it says, One of the four beasts. Going back to Revelation 4 and 5, uh, most likely these seraphims or cherubims surrounding these four beasts, surrounding the throne, and one of them speaks and says, come and see. And so now we're watching God's inspired television program of the future things. And notice verse 2. It says, and I saw... And behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. So what do we learn here about God in these first two verses? What can we learn about the white horse of peace about God? Well, here's the first thought I want to relate to you. God is sovereign over the future deception. God is sovereign over the future deception. Now, if you got your Bibles, we're going to turn back to Daniel chapter 9, and then we're going to go to Matthew chapter 24, and then we're going to make our way back here to Revelation chapter 6. Okay, so Daniel chapter 9. Remember, in Daniel chapter 9, as I just shared momentarily ago, that this chapter is all about the 70 weeks of Daniel. And in the ninth chapter of Daniel, we see a prophecy that is portrayed through the human Daniel to us now in written form. And it says in verse 27 of Daniel chapter nine, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. Now, this is speaking about the Antichrist. Now, specifically, we know that prophecy generally has a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. And the near fulfillment is this guy in the Greek empire named Antiochus Epiphanes. And he came on the scene and he he went into the temple in, in the Jewish temple and slaughtered these pigs and demanded these Israelites to eat these pigs or die. Typifying. The Antichrist is going to come and rule on this earth for seven years and make a covenant with the people of Israel, offering them peace and offering them a capability to worship God like they once did back in the Old Testament days and begin the sacrifices again. And then the Bible says that after three and a half years, this peace treaty with Israel is going to be broken. And the Bible says here, and in the midst or the middle of the week, he shall cease the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. In other words, Paul writes about this in Second Thessalonians, and speaks about how the Antichrist is going to come, and he's going to march into that temple, and he's going to declare himself to be God and then demand all humanity to worship him or die. Now take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. And we read the words of Jesus on the Mount of Olives. Jesus had two famous sermons. Number one, the Mount of Beatitudes. That sermon in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And then this sermon here, the sermon on the Mount of Olives about the end times. The disciples come and say, hey, what will be the signs of your second coming or your return? And notice what he says in verses four and five of Matthew chapter 24. He says, Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no man deceive you. Say, Deceive with me. Deceive. And it says, For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Now understand this. Um, when Jesus is speaking these words, We obviously know that false Christs are going to arise. There's many people. The spirit of Antichrist is alive today. And all of this is going to lead up to the future Antichrist that's going to come and establish a falsified peace on this world through deception. And so we see that God is sovereign over the future deception. Understand this, that this future deception is controlled by our sovereign Lord. I'm so thankful that God is in control of everything that's going on in the universe. I'm glad that he's in control of the worlds that are spinning in the universe. I'm glad he's in control of, of, of the earth and the sun and everything in your life and my life. And I'm glad he's orchestrating it all out to fulfill his purposes and his plans for the future. And we see here that God is sovereign over the fact that this world is going to have a great peaceful period. I find it interesting that when we go back and study history, especially in the 1930s and the 1940s, we read about a guy by the name of Adolf Hitler. And I learned something. As I was recently studying this, that when Adolf Hitler, I, I was probably asleep, you know, during history class or, you know, playing my Game Boy, you know, one or the other. But anyway, so as, as, as we learn in history that, that, the, that, that Adolf Hitler... Came on the scene before he ushered war and conquest. He conquered the world through peace. And he offered a peace treaty. Most of the world loved it. Historians tell us that one man by the name of Winston Churchill saw through the deception. And we see that this white horse in Revelation 6 represents the peace that the Antichrist is going to bring to this world in the days to come I mean imagine the rapture takes place and the world is in total total dismay trying to figure out was it aliens that took them or was it what 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 took these people couldn't be Jesus taking his church away of course not but what it is what is it so everybody is in utter turmoil, and the Antichrist comes in, and he steps in, and in the, in, the, in the heat of the catastrophe, he offers peace. Notice here, in verse number two, the Bible speaks about this white horse. Now, some have tried to say that this is Jesus coming. And I find it interesting that the Puritans, most of the Puritans said that this was Jesus. And many people throughout church history believe that this was Jesus coming on the white horse to conquer but understand this, that Jesus doesn't come at the beginning of the tribulation period. He actually comes at the end on a white horse. Notice here the Bible speaks about this one coming with a crown. This is the victor's crown. That somebody would go into a, a, the gladiator games and they would win the battle or they win, win the gladiator feat. And then he would be crowned with a, 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 a victor's crown. This crown that Jesus is wearing in, in the future of Revelation is the royal diadem crown. And then it says here that he's carrying a bow. We know that Jesus, when he comes, he's not carrying a bow, he's carrying a sword, the sword of his mouth. And then it says, he came to conquer. So we see that this is a great picture representing the Antichrist who's going to come and dominate this world through the means of peace. Some have called verse number two, the Cold War, where the Antichrist comes and he doesn't desire bloodshed, but he brings peace. Notice the term bow and Have you ever been hunting before? You take a bow and an arrow. If you're gonna kill a deer with a bow, you gotta have the arrow. And here the Bible, it actually does not mention an arrow. So most commentators have come and they say that this antichrist who's gonna come on the scene doesn't come to conquer with war, but with peace. And so we see that this future deception is controlled by our sovereign Lord and it's going to conquer this entire world. What can we learn about God? From the white horse of peace, understand this, that the Thessalonians chapter 5 says, when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction shall come upon them. Understand this, that, that the Antichrist or no great leader can bring peace to this world. Only Jesus can. So God is sovereign over the future deception. But now let's move forward in our passage. We see so far the white horse of peace. And remember, the four horsemen of the apocalypse teach us God is sovereign over the future tribulation. But then check it out now. Verses 3 and 4 speak about a second horse. The second horse is a red horse, the red horse of war. Let's read these two verses. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, come and see. And so John is witnessing all of this take place. And verse four, the Bible says, "And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another, and there was given unto him a great sword." The second thought today about what we can learn about God from these four horsemen is this: God is sovereign. Over the future devastation. God is sovereign. Over the future devastation. War is going to take place. In this world. Eventually. Remember back. When Adolf Hitler came to power. And he offered peace to the world. And he gave them a. Temporary peace. And then he. Began to one city after another, destroy and conquer. And his goal was to conquer the entire world. I find it interesting that there's so many parallels with Adolf Hitler. I think that he knew scripture and I think that he... In a sense, I think he thirsted for the power that the Antichrist will have. Understand this. Back in the book of Daniel, we see a description about the Antichrist. That the Antichrist is going is to, it says he's not going to have a desire of women. So one of two things. The Antichrist is going to be celibate or the Antichrist is going to be a homosexual. One of the two things. Adolf Hitler was a man publicly who described himself as being celibate, but privately we know he had relations with women. But we see that he even was called Christ and called himself Christ by many in the world. But he brought war, war, war. Millions and millions and millions and millions died at his hand. And we see that, that the holocaust of World War II will not compare to the holocaust of the Great Tribulation. Turn back to Matthew 24 with me. In Matthew chapter 24, we see that Jesus moves forward in his great sermon. And he speaks about this this false Christ or these false Christs, you're going to come and say that they are the Christ and they're going to deceive but then in verses 6 and 7 of Matthew 24 it kind of gives us a commentary on what's about to take place here and it says you shall hear wars and rumors of wars see that you be not troubled for all these things must come to pass but the end is not yet nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom now, halfway through the tribulational period, when the Antichrist marches into that temple and he declares himself to be God and declares for all men on the earth and women to worship him or die, it's going to make a lot of people upset. And it's gonna lead, people are going to lead a revolt to try to overthrow the Antichrist and it's going to cause and spawn war after war after war after war. So the entire planet is going to see war and war and war and war. Spoken of by Jesus in Matthew 24 and in Revelation chapter 6. War is always bloody. War is always hard. Imagine a world offered peace who receives war. This future devastation of war is inevitable. And it's immeasurable. Our minds cannot fathom the warfare That's going to take place in the days to come. I mean, look. Look at this verse. Verse 4. It says that they are going to kill one another. The world is going to go absolutely mad. The peace that was offered in the first two verses is going to be removed. And then we're going to see destruction and destruction and devastation. One of these days, my friends... One of these days, I'm thankful as I'm reading the second seal, I'm reminded about when Jesus comes. You see, these wars that we're experiencing, war is all a part of humanity. Did you know that? War and hatred and murder... And killing has always been an aspect of the fallenness and sinful depravity of man. Going back to Genesis chapter 4 with Cain and Abel, hatreds there and murders there. And so we see that all throughout the historical books of the Old Testament, all the way into the days of Christ, all the way to our day today and in the future, people, the the depravity of man is so severe and wicked that we just want to kill each other. So war has always been a part of humanity. But these wars are leading up to the wars in the, the tribulation period, which is leading up to the final battle of Armageddon, where Jesus Christ will put an end to war once and for all. And my friends, that's the day that we're going to take our swords or take our machine guns, take our tanks and take our bombs, and we're going to lay them on the ground and not study it anymore. There will finally be peace from the Prince of Peace. You know Our world is so consumed with weapon, weapon after weapon after weapon, gun after gun after gun, bomb after bomb after bomb. We live in some strange and crazy days that if a nation gets mad enough at another nation, by the press of a button, we have enough power to destroy the world that God created. And one day... This world will be destroyed by fire. And that will be the most devastating day of all for those who are not believers. The red horse of war reminds us God is sovereign over the future devastation. The white horse of peace teaches us God is sovereign over the future deception. And these four horsemen reveal to us that God is sovereign over the future tribulation. But now as we move forward in our text, let's look at verses 5 and 6 and see the third horse, the third seal, the black horse of famine. Notice the progression here. You have peace, then you have war, and then you have famine. Aspects that have always transpired throughout history. When a nation and rulers offer peace, the next thing that's coming around the corner is war, and then after war follows, famine. Look at verse five. The Bible says, And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see, thou hurt not the oil or the wine. What do we learn from these two verses about God? And from this black horse of famine. Here's the third thought today. God is sovereign over the future deprivation. God is sovereign over the future deprivation. These two verses represent famine. In fact, take your Bibles and turn back to Matthew chapter 24. We see that Jesus is literally walking through these seals one after another in his sermon. And in Matthew chapter 24, verse number seven, the Bible says, after the nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, we see that there shall be famines. Famines. You know what that means? That means a scarcity of food. Did you know? know, We're living in an age of pandemic and epidemic, aren't we? But notice this. Here's a pandemic that is far greater than the coronavirus. It's world hunger. Every year. Let me remind you. I'm saying every single year. Year, nine million people die from hunger. I found it interesting that did you know that this is more deaths than AIDS, malaria, and tuberculosis combined? Every single year, nine million people die from hunger. According to the Mercy Corps, a ministry trying to fight world hunger, says around the world, 821 million people do not have enough of the food they need to live an active, healthy life. Listen to this. One in every nine people, that's around the globe, goes to bed hungry every night, including 20 million people currently at risk of famine in South Sudan, Somalia, Yemen, and Nigeria. People suffering from chronic hunger are plagued with recurring illnesses, developmental disabilities, and low productivity. They are often forced to use all their limited physical and financial resources just to put food on the table. 98% 98% of the world's hungry live in developing regions. The highest number of malnourished people, 520 million people, l- resides in Asia and the Pacific. That's countries like Indonesia and the Philippines. In sub-Saharan Africa, 243 million people face hunger in arid countries like Ethiopia, Niger, and Mali. And millions of people in Latin America and the Caribbean are struggling to find enough to eat, like places of Guatemala and Haiti. The majority of these hungry families live in rural areas where they widely depend on agriculture to survive. Just to give you an idea of how many people this is, the largest city in America is New York City at almost 8.5 million people. So just imagine deleting the residents in New York City and that's how many people every single year, die from hunger right now. Now, this should compel us as Christians. We see Jesus, when he was alive, not only did he heal the sick, not only did he raise the dead, not only did he give sight to those who are blind and, and give ears to hear who those who could not hear, but we see that he fed the hungry. We see that in John's gospel, chapter six, that he took five loaves of bread and two small fishes and he fed thousands of people. And it should compel us as Christians to go out into the world and share that the bread of life came down from glory so that we could partake of his good bread from the Son of God. And so, yes, we feed the physical need, but let us never forget to feed the spiritual need of this age. Now, understand this, that as we read this third seal, God is sovereign over the third deprivation. That's the third thought today. God is sovereign over... The future deprivation, famine, famine is going to happen. Did you know that we are approaching 8 billion people in this world? And we are told in verse number 8, jumping ahead just slightly, the Bible says power over these four horsemen were given over one-fourth of the earth. So just imagine, if there's 8 million people, and by the way, um, these statistician experts estimate that by 2050, there will be 90 people living on the globe. And if there's 9, did I say million? 90 billion. 90 billion people. 90 billion people, that's a lot. Now if that's the amount of people living when the tribulation period takes place, 2.5 billion of them are going to die by the hand of the judgment. God, at least revealed here in these first eight verses. Famine is unstoppable. Famine is unbearable. We see that they offer peace, but they give war. And as a result of war, Prices rise. Inflation begins. And we see the reason why John is writing down a measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny. Notice we, we are told by uh, these scholars that, that the, the phrase wheat for a penny just simply means enough money to buy a loaf of bread. And the, the three measures of barley is enough food to just make just a handful of meals. And so we see that the Bible is reminding us here that in this time, that you, for a whole day's work... It'll just be enough money to buy a loaf of bread. Famine is a result of war. And then, as we'll see in just a few seconds, famine always produces disease and death. I want you to understand this, that these words are not written to frighten us. They are written to enlighten us. You see, God has allowed us to sit down in his theater room of the inspired text so that we can see the unfolding hand of God in the affairs of man in the future. So we've seen so far the white horse of peace, the red horse of war, the, the black horse of famine, and we've seen how God is sovereign over the future deprivation, over the future devastation, and over the future deception. And we see ultimately that God is sovereign and in control and still on his throne even during the time of great tribulation. But now, check it out now. The scene shifts. Now, let's pause right here, and let's just kind of put our thoughts into place here. We go back to Matthew 24. We go back to Daniel chapter 9, and we ask ourselves the question, at what point do these seals take place throughout the book of, uh, of, throughout the tribulation period? So, we know that the tribulation period is made up of seven years, but if you only solely study the book of Revelation, you'll only get three and a half years. So, at what point are these seals taking place in tribulation? That is, in the future. Well, I think at best we can just offer an educated, speculative guess. And so most conservative scholars believe that verses 1 through 6 are transpiring in the first three and a half years of the tribulational period. And then verses 7 and 8 begin the shift of the last three and a half years we can't be dogmatic about that but but i'm just trying to fit it all in and so as we study matthew 24 i know we've all talked about how well we're going to always hear about wars and we're going to always hear about disease and we're always going to hear about these earthquakes and we're always going to hear about these famine and all this and this and this what jesus said but understand this here these are the beginning of sorrow so he said these are the birth pangs if you've ever given birth to a child you ladies you know that 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 day is going to happen and the pain is only going to last for a moment and then it'll all be through when you see that little baby boy or girl. And we see here, Jesus said, these are the beginning of sorrows. In other words, these are the birth pangs of the time of great trial. So we see that when Jesus is speaking to Matthew 24, I believe he's referring to, in that section we're reading, to the first three and a half years of the tribulational period. And so that those famines that we've seen in our day and the wars that we've seen and the false messiahs that we've heard of and the earthquakes and all those things are leading us up to what is being referred to here in Revelation chapter six. And that leads us to verse 7. The pale horse of death. Here's the thought, the fourth and final thought today. As we read and study this chapter, God is sovereign over the future destruction. God is sovereign over the future destruction. Death is what's mentioned here. We see verse 7, look at it. It says, And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And then verse 8. It says, I looked and behold a pale horse. And the name that sat on him was death. Say death with me. Death. Say it again. Death. One more time, please. Death. And then it says, and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with a sword. And to kill with hunger. And to kill with death. And to kill with the beasts of the earth. What does this mean? God is sovereign over the future destruction. Peace, war, famine, and then you have death. Turn back to Matthew 24. We see Jesus speaks about this. He says, there will be famines in Matthew 24, verse 7, but then he says, and pestilences. And then he speaks about earthquakes in diverse places. And he says, all these are the beginning of sorrows. Pestilences are diseases. Understand this. That here, when we see the word death, some commentators say that it means death by disease. And maybe it is. And we know that when famine transpires in this culture, in this world all over, it brings diseases. Now, I don't know what disease this is going to be. But let me just, let me just say this. That there's no prescription and there's no vaccination that can save you from a disease that has been given to this world by God. When God unleashes this disease and these pestilences in all the world, I know people are going to be running to the medical doctors. I know they're going to be running to uh, the MD and the DO and everything else. They're going to go to the chiropractor. They're They're going to go everywhere they can to find healing. But I want you to understand this. They won't find it. And so here we see that while medications and while some of these prescription drugs and while some of these things can can be helpful and aid in good health along with nutrition, we see that there's not enough bananas I can eat there's not enough smoothies I can drink. There's not enough uh, baked chicken that you can eat or or tofu or guacamole. Not enough any of this stuff that you could eat that would help heal you from the disease that God is going to unleash on this world in the days to come. And so this future destruction is controlled by our sovereign God. This future destruction will be completed by our sovereign God. Understand this, that death here, it is so interesting that when you read and study death and, and hell, we see that death and hell are often mentioned as synonyms sometimes. And we see that the word hell here goes down into the Greek language for the word Hades. There's three Greek terms that are used for hell. And in our English Bible, it's translated as hell. And so we see that this word here being used by hell is the compartment that, is, that, that the dead are held in. And so we know that one day, death and hell is going to be cast into the lake of fire. And so understand this, that the greatest death is the second death. And the greatest death is not being smitten with a disease here in this tribulational period or, or COVID or some other disease, but it is dying with the disease of sin never being cured. And so 2,000 years ago, Jesus walked among us. Jesus lived among us. Jesus died on the old rugged cross. Jesus shed his blood. His body was broken. He was placed in that borrowed tomb and rose again. And now he's ascended up to glory. And one day he's going to descend again to this earth. And my friends, he did that on the cross so that you and so that we could all escape eternal separation and eternal death from the hand of God. God loves you. So much that he he wrote a book and gave us a book that reveals his great love to you and me. God so loved the world, the Bible says, that he gave his only begotten son. And God loves us to reveal to us what the future is. And understand this. That if you die without the penicillin for sin, you will spend eternity separated from God in the lake of fire. I'm thankful that God is sovereign. I'm thankful that the God who's on his throne right now in 2021 is the God who will be seated on his throne when all this takes place. I'm thankful for the mercy of God, that even though we've all experienced trials, that we've all experienced tribulations, that we've all gone through temptations, that this will be the greatest trial, the greatest tribulation, the greatest temptation that the world has ever seen. And I'm thankful for the love and mercy and grace of God that it's only going to last for seven years. And so that brings us to a final question that has to be plaguing your mind right now because it plagued mine when I read these eight verses. Why would a loving God allow this to happen to the world? It's a fair question. Well, understand this, that hell was never created for you or me. Hell was prepared for Satan and the fallen angels. Understand that. God has made every way possible to give us a way out of eternity separated from him. And then understand this, that the tribulation period is a time when God is going to fulfill the promises that he made to the nation of Israel so that they will accept him, Jesus Christ, as the Messiah, and that he will usher his judgment on a rejecting world who refuses to bow to his lordship. As I was studying this passage, I came across one commentator who answered this question in a way that I, I really just could not have the words to say. So here's what he says. Why would God allow these things? I think that God wants a clear contrast between what results from embracing his rule and what results from rejecting it. God wants people to see what happens when humans reject the true God and embrace false gods. God wants people to see what happens when humans reject the rightful king, the Lord's Messiah, Jesus, and replace him with some chump who looks good and speaks well. So God lets these fools have their day in the sun, and he lets all the mayhem and ruin that results from their pride and folly defile his world. God lets all this happen so that his wisdom, his power, his righteousness will be seen clearly. God wants people to know that only he can bring peace, justice, security, and happiness. God wants to be worshipped as God. And he wants people to embrace the rule of King Jesus, the Messiah. So as you're sitting there... In the theater of God's throne. Watching this film transpire. Understand, this is just the beginning. But my friends, the King is coming. And if you don't know Christ as Savior, now's the day. Now's the acceptable time to accept Him. And bow your knee and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. But as you're watching this Television broadcast from the words of inspiration. Understand God is the one putting it all on the screen. God is sovereign over the future tribulation. And if these messages have been helpful to you, please leave a review. If I could be of any help in your spiritual walk, please let me know by emailing me at PastorBrianRatliff at Yahoo.com. And one last thing. If you're in Roanoke, please consider joining us for one of our worship services at Clearbrook Baptist Church. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you, and have a great week.